0: Oh God. Okay. Blah, 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 blah. Blah. Word vomit. I have so much to say. It's hard to fit all this information about her into the time frame that I want to keep. Okay. Mm-mm, 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 mm-mm. Now let's get to our topic. So as I said, this week's episode is sponsored by the letter G. And for the letter G, we are going to talk about Gloria Steinem. Um, Gloria Steinem is somebody who I thought that pretty much everybody knew about. She's pretty popular. She's been known kind of as the face of the feminist movement for a long time. And when I was talking to some of my friends, and some of my friends who I think are pretty well-versed in women's history they were really unfamiliar with her and one of them even didn't, couldn't recall who she was at all. So I think it's just another example of why something like this is important. So here we go. Gloria Steinem, writer, lecturer, political activist, and a woman's rights champion. If I was going to get on here and talk about every single Accomplishment that Gloria Steinem has achieved, it would need to be an entire podcast series in itself, and she deserves that. Uh, but to serve the purpose on this podcast, we're just going to cover some of her highlights, the need to knows, so we can develop an appreciation for Gloria herself. Um, I will link a bunch of the places where I got this information from, so I highly encourage you to go check her out because. We're really just touching kind of the surface and I think it's important for you to take this information and even get your own information so you can really develop your own feelings about her. Because I can guarantee there's probably going to be people listening who have issues with some of Gloria's thoughts or opinions. Uh, She is not without criticism. She is not without um, controversy But, I mean, that's probably going to be everybody on this. So, anyway, Gloria was born March 25th, 1934. Her father was a traveling antique salesman. So, basically, what we're saying about her dad is he couldn't really keep a 9-to-5 job. And he did not, he was not happy staying in one place. And his wife and two daughters Just kind of got drug around with him to satisfy his whims. Um, Gloria describes it from a child's view as being a blast. She had so much fun doing this traveling. She was getting to do things that other kids in her neighborhood were not able to do. She didn't attend a traditional school until she was 11 years old. But for her mom, Ruth, she did not enjoy this. Um... As you can imagine, she's, her mom is playing this role already here in Gloria's life. She is seeing her mom play this role of trying to keep everything together and trying to keep everything as stable as she can for her two daughters, maintain a household, the pressure of being a mother in 1930s especially, and then... Also to be a quote good wife and just go along with whatever her husband decides that the family needs to do. She really didn't have a whole lot of opportunity to probably interject and say, no, let's not go. Gloria uh, talks about, you know, there were times where they'd be eating dinner and her dad would be like, let's go. We're going, we're going on a road trip and literally the dinner dishes would just sit there on the table. So you can imagine for her mom. That that would be terrible. I. Oh. The anxiety that would bring about. In itself would be horrifying. So. When she was 11. Her parents divorced. And Gloria settled into a new home with her mother. She spent a lot of her youth. This is going to rhyme a little bit. So it threw me off. She spent a lot of her youth. Caring for her mother. uh, Who was named Ruth. She suffered from extreme mental illness. Uh, Ruth. Had depression, she had high anxiety. I mean, just basically kind of a rainbow of mental illness. And Gloria was there for that all, and she cared for her mom through that all. Her mom would talk to her about life growing up in the Great Depression era, her love and admiration of the Roosevelts. She would explain the race riots happening in Detroit. She definitely did not shield Gloria from the tragedies of the world. But she also, in doing that, showed her the example of someone who was facing these truths but was terrified about them. She was showing her, you know, all these things happening in the world, but in her example was showing her someone who didn't really have the strength to handle it. So in her book, she talks about that. Uh, In her book, My Life on the Road, which is her autobiography, which is so good and So beautifully written and narrated if you listen to the um, Audible audiobook version. So she says, I was beginning to suspect that conflict follows politics as night follows day. The mere conflict, the mere thought of conflict was enough to depress my already depressed mother. I myself cried when I got angry and then became unable to explain why I was angry in the first place. Later I would discover this was endemic among female human beings anger is supposed to be unfeminine, so we suppress it until it just overflows. I could see that not speaking up made my mother feel worse. This was my first hint of the truism that depression is anger turned inward. Thus, women are twice as likely to be depressed. My mother paid a high price for caring so much, yet was... My mother paid a high price for caring so much, yet being able to do so little about it. And in this way, she led me toward an activist place where she herself could never go. I think that's a beautiful statement from Gloria about her childhood and about her mother. So basically she's saying, here I was watching someone who cared so much about everything and it ruined her caring so much about it. And this right here was instilling in her That's not what she wanted. She did not want to be in the same place that her mother was. So, her last year of high school, she moved to Washington, D.C. to live with her older sister and her roommates. And she comments that during this time, everyone was really expecting her to be homesick. And she says that she had never felt so liberated, being responsible for just herself. She had spent her childhood caring for her mother And now she's on her own. So during this time, she had her first political involvement, volunteering at an office dedicated to lobbying for a Democrat candidate that reminded her of Roosevelt, whom she had grown up learning to love. Her mother constantly instilled a love of Franklin and Eleanor in her. So after high school, she attended Smith College studying government, which at that time was definitely not typical for women. And during her college years... She's watching women drop out to get married and start families. She's listening to women in her class, even that are graduating with her, that are not focused on using the degrees that they're earning, but they're just getting their degree. They're there basically to get a degree in being a wife. Uh, And I mean, they're there to meet a husband. And she, she was in love. And she was engaged to be married. But the actual act of commitment in marriage itself was not something that appealed to her. She didn't want to be a mom. She didn't want to be a wife. You know, she's still having these relationships and she's going along with what she should be doing. But internally, she is not ready to make that commitment. And she's watching everyone else around her have that same path and want that and meanwhile she's studying you know politics and she's she's just not she's not ready for that so she said in the 1950s once you married you became what your husband was so it seemed like the last choice you'd ever make I'd already been the very small parent of a very big child my mother I didn't want to end up taking care of someone else um after she graduated she got the opportunity to go to India and she jumped on it. On a podcast that I listened to that she was featured on. It was the Ron Burgundy podcast. Um, she says that she used this trip as India. She used this trip to India as an escape from her engagement and the marriage to follow. She just, she knew that wasn't the path for her. She got this opportunity to go to India. And she just kind of pieced out on her fiance at the time and was like, I'm not it for you, buddy. I love you, but I can't do this. I'm going to India. So she describes her fellowship to India as something that opened up a world to her. She goes to London while she's waiting her visa to travel to India and finds out she's pregnant. Um, this is a, hu- a pivotal point in her life because here she is. She's just left this man She's just set out on this path to become who she wants to be and she finds out she's pregnant. And this is the 1950s. She, it would be much different in the world today. Today, when you become a mom, you still kind of have the opportunity to become what you want to be. In the 50s, you really did not. So, she finds out she's pregnant. She's in England. Really, she saw her choices as going back to a broken engagement, marrying the man she just left and fall back into a lifestyle that she was literally right on the doorstep of escaping. Abortion was illegal in the U S but in England, if you could obtain written permission from two doctors, you could get it done. So it was performed by Dr. John Sharp, a British, a British physician. So she does have an abortion. Um, In her memoir that she writes, which I quoted earlier, My Life on the Road, she writes, Dr. Sharp of London, who in 1957, a decade before physicians in England could legally perform an abortion for any other reason than the health of the woman, took the considerable risk of referring an abortion to a 22-year-old American on her way to India. Knowing only that she had a broken engagement at home to seek an unknown fate, he said, you must promise me two things. First, You will never tell anyone my name. And second, you will do what you want to do with your life. So obviously she breaks the first promise. But she definitely kept the second promise to him. And while you're listening to that portion, I hope that you can put aside your own personal feelings on abortion. It's a very touchy subject. For her, she did what she had to do. And she says that was the first time that she ever felt in control of her own life and her own body, really. So she gets her abortion, she goes to India, she falls in love with the country itself. She feels free, she's able to live in the moment, she doesn't have anxiety worrying about her future. Um, She comments that while living in India, she grows accustomed to seeing a rainbow of skin every day and it made her realize that in the United States, you could walk down the business district of washington dc and you would go snowblind from all the white faces indians describe nuances of color as unselfconsciously as many other aspects of appearance so that was also the first time where she realized she was connecting it back to watching you know she grew up watching race riots in Detroit and she couldn't understand them she couldn't ever put herself in that position and then she goes here in India where color's not an issue and she really starts connecting that to the injustices back in the United States based on not only sex but color and that really has a lot to do with her activism as well because she not only is a feminist activist she's just a human rights activist in general so Before leaving India, she wrote a travel guide designed to attract Americans to visit India. In this writing is where she discovered her talent to persuade people through her written word, a talent that shines through the rest of her life. She describes her time in India as a before and after event in her life. So after India, in 1958, Gloria returned back to the U.S. She made a stop in Washington to visit her family, and then she moved to New York. She's crashing on friends' apartment floors until she can get a job as a freelance writer in the city. Unfortunately, at that time, that job didn't come. In the 50s, the men were given the important topics to cover. So the men were given the political stories. The men were given the stories that were, you know, important to humanity. And women were really just kind of given the fluff pieces or what to make for dinner or how to get a stain out of your laundry. They weren't given the opportunity to cover the bigger scheme of things. So even though she had this degree in political science and at her time at Smith, she had been awarded several. um, She had been praised, you know, and she had gotten amazing grades. She had been awarded with this fellowship and still she she wasn't taken seriously as a writer So she was too broke and too impatient to sit around in New York. So she accepted a job in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Hate saying that. (laughs) An organization under the National Student Association, the NSA. Later, this service was found to have ties to the CIA, which is important because critics of Gloria Steinem will call her and label her a CIA operative. And if you listen to her talk to it, talk about it, She's like, these people are making it sound way too glamorous. They're making me sound like I'm working with the CIA, who's kind of known for shifty, shady stuff. And really, I, I had no idea and had no part of it. The CIA just funded the travel that I was doing. So she worked with them for two years, and she traveled to the World Youth Festivals, and she was working on getting non-communist American students to these World Youth Festivals. So that's the extent of her, you know, air quote, CIA career. Um, At age 26, she began working for Help Magazine, an American satirical publication, while contributing to other outlets. Her early bylines were in lifestyle sections that were referred to as the women's pages because mostly they were informally banned to give women... Again, serious topics like politics. So this is again what I was talking about with, this is again her writing about, you know, small, quote, small women stories instead of big humanity stories. When I, this is a quote from her. When I suggested political stories to the New York Times Sunday magazine, my editor was basically like, I don't think of you that way. Which is such a gross response from a boss and from someone who should be as highly respected as a New York Times editor to say, "Mm, I don't think of you that way. That's like a response that you would get when trying to ask someone on a date. Not trying to get a serious writing assignment. When you have this degree behind you, you already have this very colorful past where today a lot of people look at that and they're like what the hell because that's he should have taken that seriously and I I bet he really regrets that uh now but at the time again he didn't think of her that way so she kept pushing for hard-hitting assignments she was not she was not letting it stop her and that's something that I think is Very important when talking about Gloria Steinem. She's faced with a lot of adversity. She is faced with a lot of controversy, and she doesn't stop. She just keeps going. So during her time at Esquire magazine, she was given her first, quote, serious assignment, and she wrote a piece about contraception. But her editor didn't like it and forced her to rewrite it. So then the article became about women being forced to choose between careers and marriage. A few years later, she publishes one of her most well-known stories, I Was a Playboy Bunny, in Show Magazine. She went undercover for a month as a waitress in Hugh Hefner's Playboy Club and witnessed the sexism that women working there faced. So the recognition she gained from this story helped cement her place as a feminist journalist, which if you Google Gloria Steinem... You, one of the pictures you're gonna see pop up is she's a beautiful woman. Gloria Steinem is beautiful, and here she is clad in a Playboy bunny outfit. And she will again, here she did this thing and she did this assignment and she went undercover and she did it because she wanted to expose this glamorous lifestyle that was being portrayed. To women and was being advertised for women was not that these women were working they were getting 50% of their wages taken by the club they were facing sexual harassment on the daily and she went to expose this and then even in this hard-hitting story that she does which is a beautiful it's such a well-written piece if you want to read it um, you know people are like well look at her dressing like a playboy bunny and she'll get labeled later as just another playboy bunny. Which is sad that people were unable, some people are unable to kind of see past that. So, in her 30s is when her reputation as a journalist and feminist really took off. In 1968, at age 34, she became a founding editor and political columnist for New York Magazine, finally getting to write a column on politics and progressively got more involved in the feminist movement as a public figure. Her activism shaped the scope of her work as a journalist and she began writing extensively on issues such as abortion, gender equality in the workplace, and child abuse. One of her most notable works during this time was an essay about what women want from feminism and the way they protest titled, After Black Power, Women's Liberation. When she was 36, Steinem testified before the U.S. Senate on behalf of the Equal Rights Amendment as part of the Policy Council of the Democratic Committee. So she really has become the face of this feminist movement. So then at age 37 she founded her second publication, Ms. Magazine. It was known to be the first magazine founded and run entirely by women and taking feminist stance. Ms. Magazine, known for its feminist stance, by 1978 it had become a non magazine. It was published by the Ms. Foundation for Education and Communication and they were able to switch to an ad-free format because they kind of exposed the way that um, advertisers still had control over women and women's issues based on the content that they were advertising in these women's magazines. 1976, the magazine is the first national publication to feature domestic violence. That same year, she was working with other prominent feminists and co-founded the National Women's Political Caucus, which worked on behalf of women's issues and worked on increasing the number of women in politics. Co-founding this is when she really became the face of the women's feminist movement. Again, not without controversy. Gloria Steinem... Is a beautiful woman. A beautiful fashionable woman of the 70s. So she's wearing go-go boots. She's got makeup on. She's got mini skirts on. And she's up there fighting for feminism. And this is I think really important to talk about. Because on the anti-feminism side. And the Stop ERA movement. Basically you've got... Um, these women on this side of the issue that are saying feminists are just women who can't get husbands feminists are you know kind of they gave this uh appearance of feminists that they were women who didn't really take care of themselves and they were wearing you know baggy clothes and they're not fashionable and that's why they're feminists they're feminists Because they can't get a man. And they're feminists because they're not, you know, quote, beautiful. Because they're not pretty. They're not capable of having this life that we have. And that's why they hate it so much. And then here you have Gloria Steinem. Who is gorgeous. I mean, absolutely gorgeous. And she has had several romantic relationships. She's been engaged to be married. She is fashionable with the times and she's wearing mini skirts and she's saying, "Nope, I could have all that if I wanted it, but I don't want it. Fine that you want it. Some of us don't want that. And it's not because I can't have it. It's because I want more. And on the same, you know, same flip of the coin, you have other feminists like Betty Friedan who kind of they also discredit Gloria as a feminist leader and discredit her as being the face because of this you know they say they take a look at her playboy bunny expose and these pictures of her as a playboy bunny and they look at her appearance and they look at her relationships and they say well she's not a real feminist again unfair and That's part of why I love her so much is because she was really getting criticized um, for everything she did and she just kept pushing and she was and remains to this day such a prominent force in the feminist and human rights field and she just, she did not, I'm not going to say she didn't care what people said or thought about her because she's a human being but she didn't let it deter her and even from... Kind of her own side of people. You know, she was getting criticized and she didn't change because of the criticisms. And I think she was a really important, I think it was so important for women at that time to see that. To see you can be beautiful and be a feminist. You can care what you look like and be a feminist. Being a feminist is not reserved for the women who don't take care of themselves and can't get husbands it's, it's so much deeper than that. And she really, really, she was a shining example of that. So that is part of why I love her so much. I was watching a show the other day, Dirty John, the Betty Broderick story, which so good. Um, along with being a lover of women's history, I love true crime. And, uh, on one of the episodes, they flash back to their youth and they're talking about Gloria Steinem on the cover of this magazine, and she she's like, "What's she doing? She's so pretty. She could have a husband. Why is she being a feminist?" And it's just such a such an important thing to see. Exactly, she could, by all accounts, she could have fit into the fifties and sixties and seventies version of a you know quote good housewife and she just didn't want to because she felt like there was so much more anyway I'll quit and get back to the facts but oh I could go on forever um so at age 49 her first collection of essays the outrageous acts and everyday rebellions was published in 1983 It began her career as a published author and since she has published nine books her most recent I'll reference it again is the memoir of her life titled My Life on the Road. It was published in 2015 at the age of 81. I listened to it on Audible. I'll also be ordering a hardback copy of it. It's so good. Um, Hearing her recount these stories is just I just love it really inspiring because again here is a little girl who really came from nothing you know she didn't come from a political family she didn't come from wealth she came from basically the opposite of that she came from a mother who was divorced who suffered extreme mental illnesses and she came from that and rose to be This face of the feminist movement. And she just. I mean she shines. And. I think that's why stories like this are so important. It's great when a woman. You know when we see a woman achieve anything. But. When we see someone. Come from a background so similar to ours. And achieve these heights and accomplish these things by taking a path that we're not always presented with as a choice or as a feasible option is so inspiring. And that's, I love it. And that's what's so important to me about doing this is showing women and, you know, the upcoming women that You can achieve anything. Um, Okay, again, I'm going to go on these rants in between these facts of her, but she just really inspires me so much. Um, At the age of 52, she was diagnosed with breast cancer. They caught it early. She beat it with treatment. Um, She reflected on this experience and said, after 20 years, couldn't do it anymore. I'd been through the five stages of burnout and I got breast cancer and the universe was telling me to slow down a little bit. so although during her life she had various relationships which she will talk about these relationships if you listen to her memoir she remained unmarried she dismissed it it was an institution that destroys relationships basically she's saying you know once you get married the respect that you were given in a relationship is gone and you As she said before, it really seemed like the last choice you'd ever get to make about who you were. And she didn't want to do that. She didn't want to give up her powers that. And you have to remember that the marriage she witnessed, which was kind of the, it's supposed to be kind of the defining example in your life, especially at the time she was growing up, was her parents. And what she watched was her father basically dismiss everybody else's feelings in the family and just getting to do what he wanted and her mother just was forced to go along with it until their divorce obviously um so that's her view of marriage and she really stuck to it but at age 66 she meets and marries christian no she doesn't meet and marry christian bale because he's a child um or not a child but you know She meets and marries David Bale, uh, an entrepreneur, an animal rights activist, and the father of Christian Bale. So when she gets married, everyone is like in shock over this. Because here she is, she's been anti-marriage forever, and now she's married. So over the years, she described marriage as feeling like a restriction and not an enlargement. And she couldn't imagine ever getting married. But then after meeting and marrying David Bale, she told People Magazine in an interview that being married was like having somebody permanently in your corner. It feels limitless, not limited. They were only married for three years until he tragically died from brain lymphoma. But um, So some people look at this and they're like, what a hypocrite. She was against marriage and then finally gets married and is like, oh my gosh, it feels amazing. But you have to remember, again, the marriage that she witnessed as a child was very restrictive for her mother. And probably doing the thing, accomplishing the thing she accomplished through her life most likely could not have been done. While she was married. Just especially in that time. Maybe today yes. But in those days no. Had she been married. Had she married the man she was engaged to. And become a mother after college. That would have been what she was. We wouldn't be talking about Gloria Steinem. So it's only after she accomplishes. These things that she's accomplished. And has become an established you know activist in human rights and feminism and then she meets a man who shares a lot of those same characteristics and they're both aged they're 66 years old they've lived their lives then they get married and then she sees that this marriage in particular it's like having someone in your corner which is what hopefully all of our marriages feel like, I say our, I'm not married. All of your marriages feel like, all of marriages should feel like this. But, you know, you can tell uh, there's a lot of times where it's not. And it hasn't been historically, and it isn't now. And if that's not what it feels like, then it's probably not right. Um... It, when she turned 75, the Ms. Foundation suggested ways to celebrate Steinem's birthday for others. It called on women to engage in outrageous acts for simple justice. And around this time, Steinem was discussing some of the issues pressing of today. And it said, we've demonstrated women can do what men can do, but not yet that men can do what women do, which is why most women have two jobs, one inside the home and one outside of it which is impossible. The truth is that women can't be equal outside of the home until men are equal in it. Spot on, really. Um, You know, we hear it all the time. Well, my husband helped me with the dishes last night or he's going to babysit the kids while I yada, yada, yada. And it's just, that's bullshit. He's not helping with the dishes after dinner. They're his dishes too. You cooked everybody's dinner on those dishes, so everyone should have an equal part in cleaning it up. He's not babysitting your kids. He's watching his own damn kids, and I think as a culture and as a society, we have to get out of using that terminology. You have to get out of saying, that a man is babysitting his own children. If a man is in a position where he's babysitting his own children, then he's not a damn father in the first place, you know. And um, so I've been a stay-at-home mom now for a couple years. And during that time, Kyle works his 9-to-5 job. And then he also is a farmer. So he genuinely is not really in the house as much. And... I'm in the house all the time with the kids and just the household chores. So taking care of the house and taking care of the kids really has fallen a lot to me because he just is outside the house doing outside jobs a lot and I'm here. But in like two weeks, I'm returning to an outside of the house job. That doesn't mean the inside of the house job disappears. And I have had this conversation With everybody in our house, you know, we have Kyle and myself and we have four kids, uh, 13, 11, five, and then almost two. And I've talked to everybody about it that the jobs that need done inside the house don't go away because I go to work and I am not going to go to work for seven hour days and then come home and kill myself in overtime helping everybody else pick up everyone's got to pitch in, everyone's got to do their part. And that's what Gloria is talking about there in that quote, that women can't be expected to, right now we do hold the, you know, there still is that stigma of, fine, you can have a job outside the home, but then you still got to take care of the home, and you have two full-time jobs, and that's impossible. You're killing yourself in overtime at home, you know, and what's the overtime? Is it Is your 9-to-5 job your overtime or is being a mom and taking care of a house the overtime? And it shouldn't be. You should have a partnership. And that's what she's talking about. So she's basically saying we cannot be equal until the men and the husbands take part in that partnership. And even your children. So today Gloria Steinem continues to work for Social Justice Recently, she said, the idea of retiring is as foreign to me as the idea of hunting. So she's not having any plans of stopping soon. She's been going for a long time. She's not stopping. She's a wonderful, a wonderful role model for young feminists. She is bashed. As I've said in this episode before, she's criticized by each side for various things but she just kept going and she's not planning on stopping and she's so very intelligent and she really hammers in a lot of the important aspects of not only being a feminist but being a human and she's huge on equal rights and she is just someone who I think we all no matter what our beliefs are I think that There is something about Gloria Steinem for everyone. And I really encourage you, like Like I said, to kind of put aside, if you're against abortion, don't write her off because you're against abortion. Just listen to her story and try to take the bias out of it for that portion of her story. And because I know that that's going to be an issue. Um, But please just listen to the rest of her story There is so much more that I could say about her uh, and it's hard to balance, you know, while doing this, it's hard to balance facts with opinions and it's hard to just go through and kind of rattle off the facts of her life that I want you to know while talking about these other parts of her that I'm passionate about and that I think are really important. But I hope I did a decent job of that and I hope that you've learned something and Again, mostly, I hope that I make every single one of you a feminist.